Hello, and welcome to the Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, and today we have Yovan Buha from The Athletic to talk some Clippers. Yovan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. So, start as always. Just kind of, in your own words, describe your journey from when you first realized that you wanted to do sports journalism to where you are now as the Clippers guy for such a site as The Athletic. Well, it's been a journey for sure. Um, I mean, for me, I started falling in love with basketball when I was like eight. So since then, the NBA has been my thing. Like, I don't even consider myself a sports fan necessarily. I consider myself an NBA fan specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really from there, it was like doing something with basketball. And of course, as every eight-year-old, you know, you want to play uh, college and, and the NBA and stuff, but um, even though I'm pretty tall, I'm, I'm six five, and, and I played through high school. Like I just kind of figured I'm, I'm not good enough to make the NBA. So it's kind of like, what's that next thing? And for me, I was always good at writing. You know, I won awards and stuff in like middle school and high school, but it never really was something I was that passionate about. Until one of my buddies who was on the the high school like you know newspaper and uh, taking like journalism class, uh, he just kind of mentioned like, hey, like, why don't you try this? Like, maybe you, know, you could write about basketball and then start doing some NBA stuff. So my senior year of high school, I joined uh, journalism and I joined the school paper. And it was a little weird because I was on the basketball team, so I couldn't really write about my yeah. own team. Like, I, I just felt weird doing that. That's but, um, <laughs> yeah, so, but I, I started cover you know i got into a whole like lebron kobe debate with one of my uh colleagues and uh you know that was kind of the, the center of the height of that uh, kind of argument of you know, who's better kobe or lebron uh and then kind of got into a whole thing about the playoffs and predictions and stuff so really from like senior high school on it was when i decided like this is you know i just fell in love with it this is what i want to do uh, so i went to usc for journalism and took uh, sports media studies as my minor there. And from really the point of getting to SC, so I got there in 2010. I was there from uh, 2010 to 2014. Uh, my, my focus was get to Sable Center, you know, start covering Clippers and Lakers games, uh, you know, any way possible. And I actually got my start writing for a Lakers blog, uh, Lake Show Life on Fansided. So that was the, the 2010-11 season. And that was really my first kind of taste of, of writing anything, you know, with the byline and, and, you know, just kind of seeing my name online and stuff. So that was pretty cool. And then that, that summer, right before the lockout and, and then eventually the Chris Paul trade, um, I got a position writing for Clipper Blog, which was then part of the ESPN Truth Network. So that, that was really like my first big break uh, because, you know, it was an ESPN-affiliated blog. Uh, you know, some of the people you know, that was run by Kevin Arnovitz and uh, they, they just had a lot of alumni that were doing, you know, starting to do really good things across the industry. Uh, DJ Foster, uh, Jordan Heimer, like guys who wrote for ESPN. Um, you know, now DJ is a freelance writer for The Ringer. And it was just, you know, really cool to be a part of that, you know, the kind of moment and movement. And then they got Chris Ball. And, you know, that kind of just changed everything because all of a sudden there was this huge appetite for Clippers coverage. So, you know, for me, uh, I think kind of taking that route in 
with the Clippers and then him getting Chris Paul, like that's just fortuitous, right? Like you, you can't really predict that. So all of a sudden ESPN had this, you know, need for additional Clippers coverage and started doing this thing called the Lodge City Ledger, which I don't know how many of you guys remember the uh, the heat index uh, when, when you know the LeBron went to Miami, but they had these like kind of post game grades for each grade uh, for each game, and they, they did the same thing with the Clippers. So I started doing that and kind of we got to start freelancing for ESPN. So my sophomore year at USC, I started freelancing for ESPN, which was really cool. Seeing my byline on ESPN, um, you know, I think I was probably the youngest writer they had at the time. I was only like 19. Um, so that, that was really cool. Uh, I also interned at Grantland uh, my sophomore year. So that was another big break I had um, that just so happened I knew someone who was one of their first interns and he, he recommended me uh, to, to get an interview. I got an interview, got the gig, and so my entire sophomore year, um, I was working at Grantland for about three days, three to four days a week, um, kind of moved my schedule around so I had more time during the day to go over there. Uh, so that was an invaluable experience, like, uh, you know, learning from the, the great team they had there, um, meeting Bill Simmons and then getting to see him, you know, multiple times a week. Uh, you know, he, he really was kind of my first writing influence and, and one of the, the first people I started reading and, and listening to with podcasts and stuff. So that was just like an, an insane, you know, kind of break for me. And then through the rest of college, I, I really just was consistently uh writing and freelancing for ESPN. Um, you know, I, I kind of became the backup beat guy, where at the time it was Dave McMenamin on the Lakers. And now he, he's back there after going to Cleveland with LeBron. And then it was Arash Markazi on the Clippers. So anytime those guys didn't want to go to practice or didn't want to go to a game, you know, maybe they're coming off a road trip uh, and they're just like, you know, it's a Saturday night game against like the Charlotte Bobcats and they don't want to go, like they'd send me to that game. So, that was a really good experience. I got to learn from both of those two and, and just kind of, you know, have them as mentors and resources and uh, work with the ESPN editorial staff and just kind of get, I, I felt an experience that not many kids my age were getting. Mm-hmm. And then po- post-grad, I uh, went to Fox Sports and was there for a couple of years. Uh, wore a few different hats there, started doing like newsletter writing, but then became uh, a writer and editor and Fox Sports West didn't really have a digital presence in, in terms of someone covering the Clippers. So that was really kind of my first time. I wasn't a full-time beat guy, but I was basically a part-time beat guy. And like home games, I, I was a Clippers writer, um, you know, traveled a little bit to, to Golden State in the playoffs. That actually ended up being the, the, the Donald Sterling series. Uh, so that, that was insane being up there too. Uh, and then outside of, after my two years at Fox Sports, I went to ESPN as an editor um, and, and, you know, put in two years there um, on the NBA desk and then uh, got hired by The Athletic uh, last June uh, as part of their expansion into the L.A. market. And they hired me as originally we were talking about potentially being a, a NBA writer somewhere else. And then, you know, whatever their Clippers plans were fell through and they offered me the, the LA position. I was like, this is a no brainer for me. I've been, I've been covering this team basically for seven years yeah. uh, you know, since college. So um, now here we are now. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a journey. I think my first follow-up question is, you know, back when you were still 
just writing in high school, could you have ever possibly imagined that the Clippers would become such a huge niche for you and just in the NBA in general that so many people care about this team? No, no. And, and that's the thing. And it, it's funny that people always ask me, and I actually haven't talked about this a lot, you know, publicly and in like this type of forum, but people always ask me, like, you grew up a Lakers fan, you grew up a Clippers fan. Like that, that's one of the questions everyone asks me. The truth is, I, I, I did grow up a fan of, of both teams. Um, you know, I, when I was eight, was the year 2000, which was the first year of the Lakers three feet. So, like any eight year old, you're going to like what your friends like. All my friends were, were Lakers fans. So, I mean, Kobe and Shaq were probably the two biggest stars in the league at that time. Like, you couldn't not like those guys, especially being in LA. Mm-hmm. But because of honestly the, the ticket prices, like, I went to more Clippers games. Like, it, it was a rare occasion. I maybe went to like, one Laker game a season, I was going to multiple Clipper games a season. And just from going to the games, that kind of experience, like I fell more in love with the Clippers. And I actually, I was more on the Shaq side of the Kobe Shaq kind of divorce. Mm-hmm. So I've never fully been in uh, on the Kobe train. So kind of once Shaq left, um, you know, I still was dreaming for the Lakers, but I, I was starting to educate myself on basketball and kind of the way that they, game should be played and I was not a big Kobe fan so I think kind of around the time of high school going into college was when I, I really switched over to like uh, I like the Clippers more and it just kind of so happened you know that's when Blake popped as a rookie and then the next season they got Chris and it just kind of all snowballed where um, you know I, I tell people that and, and a lot of people don't get it because in most two team cities you, you have to pick one you know you're you're uh, the Jets or the Giants, you know, you're the Yankees or the Mets, you're the White Sox or the Cubs. Like in LA, it really was never like that dynamic until now, you know, the, the past few years. So um, growing up, like all my friends who were Laker fans were really for the Clippers. You know, they, if they played each other, they'd root for the Lakers, but it, it wasn't this like rivalry. There was, it was, the Clippers were so bad, like no, no one really cared. It was just like, oh, it's the LA team, like I'll root for them. But once they got Chris Paul, I think that's when things changed. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of. I never saw the Clippers being this relevant. I never saw them, you know, being the title favorites entering the season. So um, if, if you told me that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah, and I can't even imagine how special it must have been to be able to watch all that grow. Yeah, no, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's, I've probably been at this point the longest tenured person around the team. Like the, the only other person that has been around as much as I have. And, and, you know, probably more because he was a beat guy for multiple years is, is Dan Wojcicki. Mm-hmm. the LA times, but like I've thought of him, um, and like Kevin Artovitz, um, I, I've been at, you know, as many Clipper home games as, as anyone over the last eight years. So, um, you know, just seeing where they started with the Lob City, um, you know, like right before Lob City, then when Lob City started and then kind of that first couple of years, there was a lot of excitement around that team, just the freshness of Blake and, and Chris was, was really in his prime at that point. And then kind of seeing people turn on them after the, that OKC series, after that Houston series, mm. and then kind of seeing the, the backlash against Lob City and the, the floppers and the chokers and they can't win. And then that kind of being validated with, with multiple first round exits and them just not making the conference finals. And then the Clippers just pulling off this crazy rebuild over the last couple of years where, you know, I, I don't think it's been really talked about enough how like this might be the most impressive rebuild we've ever seen where you know, they went from having three All-NBA guys to zero to two within two years. And we've just never really seen another rebuild like that. So um, I think, yeah, the, the past 
decade of Clippers basketball has just been incredible to, to watch you know, firsthand. And um, I'm looking forward to tomorrow's game because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me about your story in particular is that you really, as soon as you started off doing this, you were in with like the big companies, right? A lot of the guys that I talked to for this, they start off with a bunch of small papers or a bunch of small slides and then slowly work your way up. You started off with the Lakers blog and then you were immediately hopped into the Clippers blog. That was an ESPN affiliate. You got Grantland, you got all this stuff. Now that you have the benefit of hindsight outside of the obvious, you know, names and connections aspect, do you see any advantages to being kind of that young and getting uh, familiar with the like big notable names of in sports journalism? Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, What's really helped me is I've, you know, just, it's just been the networking. It's been knowing people. It's been, I mean, like, you know, a big part of it, too, is, is being in L.A. where you have two NBA teams. It's kind of become, you know, definitely now is like the center of the NBA universe, but it, it's been becoming the center of the NBA universe this decade. I think it's really been that shift from the Northeast, you know, New York, Boston, Philly, like that. That was kind of just, you know, that area had a stranglehold on the NBA for decades. And I think... Um, you know, obviously ESPN being in Bristol is part of like the, the Northeast thing, but I think that's been shifting West, uh, you know, really for kind of since maybe this millennium, but definitely the last decade or so, um, you know, with just, you know, the Lakers and then Kobe and then them winning championships and, and then now getting LeBron and then, you know, the, the Clippers with Bob City and then now having Kawhi and PG. It's just like, I think overall, like the LA has only grown in importance. So I think LA has been a big part of it. Like I, I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking to you if I had gone to school in Phoenix or Charlotte or Indiana. Like I, you know, I think it had to have been like LA or New York probably, but you know, I think the, the advantage for me and kind of how I viewed it was like, you know, cause most people, like you said, kind of do take the small, like most of my classmates at, at school were doing the school paper or they were doing like, you know, a, a smaller internship and, um, you know, while I would have definitely done those things if other doors didn't open for me, I, I was more aggressive about like, I want to go as big as possible. I want to think as big as possible. And, you know, if I don't get that, I don't get that. But um, you know, I think for, for me, it was like, okay, well, I have now this experience at ESPN and like uh, Jay Adonde was my teacher at USC. And so now I have like Arash and, and Dave McMenamin and Jay and, and all these ESPN editors who know me. And it doesn't mean I'm going to work at ESPN like right out of school, but I at least have familiarity with these people and, and have them as resources, have them as, you know, if, if I want to put them on my resume when I'm applying for something, if I want them to talk to someone that they've worked with previously, like they'll do that for me. And I think a lot of what I've kind of learned about this business is you, know, you can be the best writer, the best podcaster, the best, you know, on camera person, but if no one really knows who you are, like you can only get so far. And I think, um, you know, what I've tried to do is, is balance it where, like, you know, I, I think I've, I've come a long way in terms of my writing, my, my podcast ability, like all, all that stuff. I, I've really grown over these years. But a big part of that has also been, like, the, the networking and, and knowing people and, and just being a good person and having people like you. You know, I think mm. most people that I've interacted with in this business don't have a negative thing to say about me because I've tried to conduct myself well and, and have good relationships and, and just, you know, be honest and upfront with people and it, you know I think people sometimes you know stuff doesn't work out that way and I've seen certain people like burn bridges and, and once you burn those bridges they're, they're kind of gone and it's a pretty small industry you know it's 
people talk, people, you know, you get a reputation. And so for me, it's just been kind of a combination, I think, of, you know, a lot of fortune and luck, uh, really kind of grinding my face off. And then also just being in L.A. at the right time, uh, knowing the right people at ESPN, Fox Sports, Grantland, uh, all these different places. And then um, also just trying to be you know, a good person and, and, you know, maintain those relationships and connections and, and hope they pay out down the road. Yeah, I'd say you've done an all right job so far, all things considered. You're in a pretty good spot right now. All right, so shifting on to the basketball questions here, I think the biggest one for the Clippers is obviously how do you kind of see Doc Rivers handling the load management thing, the holy word that everybody's going to be talking about. Load management. How do you see that play out? So I think that – I'll say I, I think Kawhi is going to load manage less than everyone expects. And I think Paul George is going to load manage more than people expect. So I'm more pessimistic on the Paul George timetable. I think, um, you know, it was kind of thrown out. He's going to miss through October, which is only six games, and try to come back early November. I think he's going to be out mid to late November, probably miss closer to around, get to put like an average, like somewhere around 15 games, like 12 to 15. And then it would not surprise me if he's on a load management program moving forward, whether that's minutes restriction or resting, you know, back-to-backs or just kind of random games here and there. Like, so I, I would kind of put it as I expect Paul George to all – when all is said and done, like I think he'll miss around 20 games at least, uh, maybe 20 to 25 this season. Um, so that I think is like some people might think he's going to be back sooner or think he'll be – back 100%, like, I'm a little more skeptical. Uh, as for Kawhi, I think he's probably going to rest 8 to 12 games, and it's going to be about half, if not even less, uh, than he did last season. So, uh, from, from kind of projecting the Clippers, like, I think this is a really good team, obviously. Like, you know, they're the favorites for a reason. I think if you told me both Kawhi and PG played 75-plus games, I'd say this team has 61 potential, even in the West, and I think they'd clearly be the number one seed, but I just don't see that happening. I see Kawhi being around like 70 games played. I see PG somewhere in the late 50s, early 60s. And because of that, I have them a little bit lower in my personal standings. Um, I probably put them around the three or four seed uh, with like you know, low to mid 50 uh, wins. So um, I, I think you know it's going to be a topic all season. Already, we you know, tweeted out today, like the doc said Kawhi is full go tomorrow, no minutes restriction. Uh, no limitations, like he's going to play it as much as he's able to. But I think it's going to be something they manage, uh, you know, manage all season, monitor all season, where maybe they're resting in practice, and then the Clippers kind of use that as a loophole of like, all right, you're playing games, but you're not going to practice like full contact, five on five stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting where we're at with all this because it, it's just not going to go away. It's going to be a topic, you know, it's going to be a topic in November be a topic in January it's gonna be a topic in April like how much are these guys resting and how does it affect their record yeah I think that is perhaps what might end up being one of the biggest impacts of the Raptors run last year was that they pretty much proved to everybody that you can have your star players sit out for almost a quarter of the season and as long as he's healthy for the playoffs it doesn't really ultimately matter at the end you know exactly um so obviously as you said the team is much better this year than it was last year (laughs) A lot of different personnel. Um, who, so just from your own personal standpoint, who do you see 
from the players that are left, Kawhi and Paul's new teammates, who stands to benefit the most from their arrival as far as their own personal play goes? That's a good question. I, I've I've almost only looked at it from the opposite way of who can lose the most. <laughs> um, I think two guys that stand out, because I think he is the kind of the dream role player you put around guys like Kawhi and PG. Like you want that elite floor spacer. And Landry last season, if you looked at it in terms of volume and percentage, had arguably the, the second best you know, three-point shooting season as a rookie uh, outside of anybody other than Steph Curry. So just from that perspective, like I already think Landry Shaman is in that conversation as a top 10 three-point shooter in the league right now. Uh, if not just firmly in that conversation. So I think putting a, a guy with that level of floor spacing around uh, you know, Kawhi and PG, it's just going to open up things for those guys. Uh, it's going to open up things for Landry. Like, you know, you can, it, it's hard to double you know, Kawhi on the block or um, you know, Paul George coming off of the screen on the weak side if you have Landry curling off of the screen on the other side because he did show – you know, Doc basically ran the same sets for him that he ran for J.J. Redick when J.J. was a clipper, and Landry excelled in that, and he did really well. Um, he struggled a bit offensively in the playoffs, but you know, on the other side of the floor, he defended Steph really well and showed that you know, he, he's not some, uh, you know, he's not a bad defender. He can actually hold his own to, to a reasonable extent. So, I think Landry's one, and I think the beats of Zubats. I, I think Zubats was a, a bit banged up last season. People really. Um, kind of beat him up at the end of the year once he got benched in the Warriors series. But, look, we, we've seen the Warriors, you know, run Clint Capella off the court, run Rudy Gobert off the court. Like, this is what they do. And for that to happen to Zubats, you know, it wasn't very surprising to me um, that, that Trez and you know, Montrose Harrell and Michael Green were more effective against the Warriors. Like, the, you know, they're more mobile. But I, I think Zubats, you know, defensively is their best option at the five. Um, he he if you look at his rim protection numbers, he, he isn't a Rudy Gobert, Miles Turner, you know, Anthony Davis level defender, but he's kind of in that next tier or, or that third tier of you know the, the next level of rim protectors. I think people don't really talk about his defense enough, but um, I think he's going to fit in really well around PG and, and Kawhi, and he's going to benefit from all the attention you know that they draw offensively because. You know, he, he's so big that he, he doesn't need a lot of space to, to go up and dunk. And if he, you know, now that his hands are healed, he, he had some hand injuries last season, uh, he can actually catch the ball now and finish. And, uh, you know, you sure. saw, like, he, he injured both of his hands when he got to the Clippers, and you saw a decrease in his finishing on the rim. So I think if he's healthy, Andrew's healthy, those guys are both young, I think they're both going to have better seasons this season. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing Zubac, especially. I think he got a little too much heat for being run off the floor by the Warriors. Like, they're the Warriors. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, but then, as you uh, as you earlier said, let's look at it from the flip side. Who's going to be hurt the most by their uh, their presence here? I think it's unquestionably Lou Williams, uh, just because Lou last season, and it really the last two seasons, uh, dating back to when they traded Blake Griffin at the 2018 trade deadline. Um, like he was the, the Clippers closing offense and you look at his closing numbers. It was like, he was up there with the, the James Harden's and the Kyrie Irving's and the Kevin Durant's and Steph Curry's like, he, he was a very high usage player in crunch time. And he actually did pretty good in it. Like, you know, and the Clippers last season were the best team in crunch time. You know, the, the, I think a big reason why 
they made the playoffs and won 48 games was because of that. Like, if you actually look at their point differential, they had the point differential of a 43-1 team. Like, the, the Clippers probably, with the way they played last season, could have been a 10th seed, an 11th seed, but they won a bunch of games in crunch time because of Lou Williams and his heroics. But this season with, with Kawhi and PG, there's no way he, you know, he has the same role. Like, he, he's going to be the third option at best. I think there's going to be times when you see Montrez Harrell maybe be the third option or even Landry Shamit. So I think with, with Lou, you know, his issue has always been the defensive end, and that's why he's come off the bench for most of his career is that you know, he's not a good defender. Um, not only is he not a good defender, he's really one of the worst you know, defensive guards in the league, and, and teams will cruelly pick, you know, pick him out and post him up or, or run pick and rolls at him. And I think for him – you know, kind of, if you're looking at how the, the Clippers' closing lineup should go, if you have Kawhi and PG out there, I actually think Pat Beverly and Landry Shamit fit better around those two than Lou Williams does. Because similar to the Westbrook-James Harden dynamic, Lou really is most effective when he has the ball in his hands. And if you're giving the ball to Kawhi the most, and then PG the second most, Lou's kind of out on an island, like, what am I doing? Like He's, he's not really a, a spot-up shooter, and he's not the level of spot-up shooter that Pat or Landry is. So, to me, it would not surprise me if we actually see Lou sit out some end-of-game situations, um, you know, for three minutes, five minutes, whatever, because if you're playing a high-level offense, you can't really hide him defensively. There's really no good spot to hide him. And I think Kawhi and PG will help him if the Clippers continue to close with him. But for me, like, Pat is, is a great guy to put around ball-dominant wings. He's a 3 and D point guard. He doesn't need the ball. As I already mentioned, Landry, I think, is already one of the best shooters in the league, one of the best four spacers. So you put those two in the backcourt around Kawhi and PG, I think good things are going to happen offensively. And then defensively, obviously, Pat is an all-defense caliber guy. I think Landry is an underrated defender. So to me, Lou is the one guy where I'm like, I could actually see a big reduction in his points, his shots, his minutes. Um, you know, I, I think – the Clippers will find that balance of, of keeping him happy and, and, you know, kind of figuring out what's best for the team. But he's, to me, is the one guy who I think stands to lose a lot this season. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. He's not really the number one guy anymore, but he's uh, he's a vet. And I think, you know, he's real eager to win a ring is sort of the percent. The... Yeah, exactly. Um, but my next question here is about Kawhi. Now, Kawhi is just, I mean, the whole situation over the last couple of years has been really fascinating. And we've, we're finally at the end game where he is where he wants to be playing for the team that he wants to play for in the city that he wants to live in. Now, um, as kind of a beat writer reporter, what's the sort of like the energy that you've gotten off Kawhi in the early days here and kind of what he's just like as a person now that he's out in Los Angeles? Has it changed at all from what you thought of before or is it just kind of remain still Kawhi uh still Kawhi <laughs> um I mean I'll say he I think he has a little bit more personality than people give him credit for um you know, he, he has that kind of dry sarcastic sense of humor where you know he'll answer questions very matter of fact and I kind of I get the vibe that there's a level of like you know it, there's a little pop in him where you know if you ask a question the wrong way he'll kind of roast you a little bit or just give you the, the most basic dry answer and you know some people might view that as like no personality I kind of view it as like he's kind of exposed like exposing how bad the question is or just kind of how it was maybe a little misworded so I think just seeing him with his teammates like you know he 
he's smiling, he's joking, he's, you know, kind of, kind of vocal. Um, you know, he's not Pat Beverly, he's not Montrez Harrell, but, he, you know, he, he does have more personality, I think, than people, um, you know, often kind of give him credit for. But that being said, when he does interact with the media, he does advertise. You know, you, you've seen his press conferences, you've seen his scrums, like, he's very short answers, you know, to the point, direct, matter of fact, and you don't really get a lot out of it. You know, there's not a lot of juice on that bone. It's a very, it's a very dry bone. So, um, you know, I think most of the quotes I'll be using all year, you know, directly related to Kawhi will have to be from other people. Um, I'm sure there'll be stuff where I, I quote him, but, you know, for the most part, I don't think you're going to be going to that well a lot to, to get a lot of color and, and quotes and stuff. It's going to be, I think it's going to be Paul George. And I actually think, you know, something that hasn't been talked about enough is how it's almost a perfect marriage between the two where, you know, Kawhi clearly is the number one. He showed it in San Antonio. He showed it in Toronto. Um, you know, he's in that conversation for best player in the league. Paul George, I, I think, you know, obviously had an MVP caliber season, finished third in MVP last year. And I think he's unquestionably a top 10 guy, but I do think he's probably more of a number two or at least a one B to Kawhi's one A. And, you know, but I think conversely, it's going to be Paul George gets more of the media attention once he's back. And it's going to kind of be this nice balance where Kawhi doesn't want the limelight. He doesn't want to talk to the media after games and, and kind of um, deal with all that. So that kind of responsibility is going to be more on Paul George once he's healthy and back talking to the media. Um, so I think it's kind of a nice balance there where, you know, Paul George will probably be the number two option and, and kind of be the, the sidekick to Kawhi, I guess, if you want to kind of phrase it that way, but you know he's going to get the more of the media attention, more of the questioning, more of like that spotlight. So it's going to he's still going to feel like a number one, but he's really going to be kind of the, the number two behind Kawhi. Yeah, and everybody's really a number one in LA in one way or the other, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, so we'll just move on to the last part here, which is just some quick little more fun questions. You know what I'm saying? So start. What is your favorite NBA arena? It was Oracle. Um, R.I.P. Now, yeah, no, R.I.P. Uh, outside of Oracle, I mean, Madison Square Garden, there's nothing like it. Just the the, the arena, you know, as cliche as it can come off, like the arena just has this buzz to it that you don't get in any other arena. Like, um, it, it's just just the lighting and, and you know, the, the um, just the in-game, is the music they play and the jumbotron and just everything about the environment is is just special and um, you know the, the other I, w- I would say the other arena the other two arenas that were particularly impressive in terms of their crowd were Boston and Oklahoma City uh, those two really stood out to me this uh, past season uh, so I would also throw those two up there yeah not too uh, not too shabby of a trio by any means. Now, I realize for this next question, there might be a couple answers, so whatever you feel like. What's your go-to place to eat in Los Angeles? Go-to place to eat in Los Angeles. Wow. Um, it's a very tough one. <laughs> first question. You know, for me, especially, because I'm just like doing all of these interviews and getting slowly building up a Rolodex of different places to eat all over the United States, but also, you know, I mean... Los Angeles is a great place to eat. You're you're the guy on the inside. That it's true. No, it's it's just there's so many <laughs> there's so many options. Like I don't 
Ah, wow. What is my favorite place to eat? Um, you know what? I, I just had, I'll, I'll give you an underground, or not underground, but a not as, I'm not going to give you the, the catch or, you know, the kind of, you know, Nobu um, sort of fancy answer that some people might give. Um, Taylor's Steakhouse. I just ate there for my birthday with uh, a group of friends, and it's this steakhouse in Koreatown. It's like an old school, you know, 50s, 60s style, you know, steakhouse, and um, you could get like a private room for like 10 people and, and just, you know, eat um, just great steak, great potatoes, like just, you know, that that's that's my type. I'm a meat and potatoes type of guy, so um, literally. Yeah, literally. So I'll say Taylor's Steakhouse. All right, excellent. I'll remember that one. Um, Actually, I'll also say I'll, I'll say one more, one more place. The, the best, but the best meal I had this year was at Spoon by H uh, in Hollywood, and Isaac Lee from The Ringer took me there, and okay. uh, had a great time. And that was like like a seven eight course meal. Like it was amazing. Um, so Spoon by H also. Yeah, those ringer guys strike me as the type to know the spots. I don't know why. It just kind of feels like that, you know? Um, who has been your favorite player to interview at any point in your career? Could be a Clippers guy. Could be somebody else. Uh, favorite player to interview would be Jamal Crawford. Um, he's the he's the nicest guy, like, in, in the league, I think. And um, I just even seeing him last season when he was on Phoenix and coming back, like we talked a good 10 minutes pregame. And, um, you know, he's someone I interact with on, on Twitter. Well, you know, he likes all my stuff and uh, will DM me different stuff. And it's just, uh, you know, Jamal is definitely one of the, the nicest guys I've, I've been around in the league. And then, um, you know, you've been in the industry for a while now. What's something that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were starting out writing for that Lakers blog or when you were still in high school? Uh, I would say this. there's a sales aspect to this job that I didn't anticipate. Uh, I think from the outside looking in, you kind of view it as just like, all right, I'm going to cover the NBA. I'm going to cover a team. You know, I watch the games. I go to games. I talk to the players, I talk to team people and that, you know, talk to the media people and, and that's kind of the job. But mm-hmm. there's definitely a sales aspect to it in terms of, you know, both selling yourself, whether that is on social media, whether that is to potential, you know, employers um, and, and, you know, also an element of, of selling yourself to people from the team, right? Like, you know, it, it's all kind of about how you, um, you know, pit, kind of pitch yourself to an extent. And, you know, and it feels weird kind of saying that and, you know, thinking about it that way. But, like, you know, there, there is that element of it of I think everyone who is successful in this industry and who is, is well-sourced, you know, kind of has that element to them of, you know, a certain air about them. And, and you know, they're all relatively confident people. And, and you know, they're all, you know, even – even people that you might think might be come off as socially awkward or, or kind of weird on camera, like, you know, if, if they're breaking news, if, if they're, you know, reporting stuff out, like they're having many, many conversations with people. They're, you know, cold emailing, cold calling, walking up to people at games and, and having these interactions that, you know, there's, that, that's kind of where that salesperson 
aspect is to it, which, you know, I've, I've don't have a sales going in my body. So there's been times <laughs> where, um, it, that's kind of been a weird thing, but like, just like you have to walk up to a house and, and you know, ring a doorbell or, or knock on the door and pitch yourself to someone. The same thing as walking up to someone at an NBA game. Like there, there's not many differences. So, um, that, that kind of element of it, that super like, you know, kind of schmoozy business person type thing. Like there is that element to this if you want to reach a certain level. And that's kind of what I've learned, especially the last couple of years, you know, traveling, being on the beat, um, just kind of rising a bit through the industry. Like you kind of see like you have to do that and you have to do that well if you want to reach a certain level. Mm-hmm. Very well said. And finally, this could overlap a little bit with that answer. Um, what's something about this job that you feel like other people don't really know or don't understand? I think, I think remaining objective is one of the hardest things. Um, because I think, you know, whether you're a beat person or whether you're more like, you know, an, an overall league person, you know, like a like a Zach Lowe or um, a Sam Amick or you know, just kind of on and on down the list. Like, you know, I think it, it is, you know, you form relationships with, with certain teams or certain players or certain agents or coaches or whatever. And like, I think just from the, the resources you have from the available, like for me, for example, when I'm, you know, talking about the Clippers, I have an insight that very few people have, but that, you know, can work against me and, and it could also work for me. Right. So like, I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to get opinions from certain people around the team. And I'm going to form my own opinions and that's going to potentially cloud my judgment one way or the other, positive or negative. And I, th- I just think sometimes like the closer you are to something, the harder it can be to really be purely objective. And that's where I think someone, you know, that I you think kind of sets that standard is Zach Lowe. You know, that's why when Zach Lowe shows his opinion on something, people almost take that as gospel because, you know, he, he just kind of comes off as as objective as, as you can really be in this industry. And he does have, you know, his biases that he'll sometimes, you know, say, you know, but it kind of is more like mascots or court design or colors or whatever. But um, I think for me, like, that's where, you know, just trying to keep, and for me, I, that's what I try to do is even with my Clippers coverage, I try to remain as objective as possible and try to tell you the truth as best as I know it and, and not paint you, you know, what someone wants you to hear or what I think you want to hear. Like I, I'm trying to re- re- be as accurate as possible. And um, But I think anytime you kind of can insert your opinion, that's where you got to be careful. And that's where you know it, it can be hard in this industry. And, I think sometimes people get flack for having an opinion or taking on something. And, you know, I, I think it's easy to kind of sit there on Twitter and just, you know, criticize someone or say, you know, you're an idiot or you don't know what you're talking about or you're biased. But until you're actually in that position of trying to balance being objective versus being subjective and, and sort of some of the behind the scenes stuff and relationships you have and kind of maintaining those, like, you can't really you know, understand it unless you're doing that. So I think it's, it's easy for people on Twitter to criticize certain things, but until you're actually in that position of balancing, you know, because one thing I think has really changed, 
you know, because of Twitter and because of how public you know, people's opinions are now, is it, I think it's become harder to criticize players. Like if I criticize a player on the Clippers, that player might not want to, you know, they might find out about it within a day and they might not want to talk to me. And it's something like you, you have to kind of, you know, but that's not going to stop me. You know, I've, I've criticized plenty of, of Clippers players. And, you know, like last season, I was really hard on Avery Bradley. I, I thought he was one of the worst players in the league. And, you know, I, I wrote that. And, um, but, you know, you, you just, there's so many kind of, you know, delicacies to this job that I think people can't really comprehend that until they're actually doing it. And, you know, big one is relationships, what you say about people, especially players and coaches, because they read that, they're sensitive. And with, with social media now, with, with platforms like Uninterrupted and Players Tribune, like players don't need you as, as much as they did before. So if you burn a bridge with a guy, you might not get that guy back. And I, I think that kind of element of it is something that people don't really understand. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think it's impossible to really understand the true subtleties of those relationships unless you're in the locker room, you're facing those guys after you wrote those words, you're holding yourself accountable. And especially people on Twitter have a lot to learn about accountability, in my opinion. But. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, that'll be it. Jovan, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on the podcast. It was a very, very insightful conversation, and I hope you enjoyed yourself as well. Um, I did, man. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you, listener. Please be sure to tune in next week for our next Press Pass podcast guest. This is your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.